Wonderful. Do grab a seat. And uh, if you could keep your Bibles open at, uh, at Acts chapter 8, that would be a great help. Uh, it's on page 916. Um, and if you want to keep a finger in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 56, page 616, we'll flick back there at some point. So Acts chapter 8, and we'll flick back to Isaiah in a little bit. Let's give you a minute to find those. Uh, let me ask you as we start this morning, um, do you ever feel that you don't belong? Do you ever feel like you don't fully belong? Um, it's a bit like the feeling of being picked for the football team, but never quite making it off the bench, or being invited to the party, uh, but when you get there, um, no one really wants to, to speak to you. I wonder if you can relate to that. My, um, my son Joshua, um, he reads these um, Dr. Zeus books, I don't know if you've read this series, um, and there's one called The Sneetchers, and uh, The Sneetchers and Other Stories. And The Sneetchers, they're basically big yellow ducks. The Sneetchers live on beaches, it's a rhyming book. Uh, so The Sneetchers live on beaches, big yellow ducks. And, and they're all basically the same, except some of them have stars on their bellies, and some of them don't. And the ones who don't have stars, they're quite sad, because the ones who have stars on their bellies won't let them play, they don't invite them to their parties, and they don't have fun with them. And one day, uh, a man comes along, and he says to the, the ones who don't have stars, I can give you stars on your bellies if you go through my special star-on machine. So they go through the star-on machine, and they all get stars printed on their bellies. You think that would be good news. Problem is, the ones who had stars to start with, they're now really sad, because everyone looks the same, and now they can't tell who's best. And of course, someone has to be best. So they then find another man who says, actually, I can take your stars off your bellies. So they go in a star-off machine. Now, they no longer have stars in their bellies. And now, of course, the ones who don't have stars, they're the best. That's the new fashion. Not having stars is now good. So the ones over here, obviously horrified, they want to join in, they want to be the same. Long story short, they go round and round and round, taking off stars, putting on stars, taking off stars, putting on stars, until they can't remember who had a star at the beginning and who didn't. And the irony of all of this is they actually all were the same in the first place. Um, sometimes I wonder um, whether, as churches, we can fall into the same type of trap as the Sneetchers. Um, we all ultimately have the same foundation. We're all big yellow ducks, in the analogy. We all have the same foundation of Jesus Christ. We all have the same citizenship of heaven, and we're all one in Jesus Christ. But sometimes I think we can fall into the trap of thinking that some of us are like the Sneetchers with stars. Um, that there's a certain kind of a person or group um, that is somehow more on the inside than another person or group. And we're going to come back towards the end of um, our time together this morning just to think about what that might look like, how it might manifest itself in practice. But just to give you a sense of that's the kind of dynamic and challenge that we're talking about from our reading in Acts this morning. Because uh, in Acts chapter 8, uh, we met a man um, who feels like he doesn't fully belong. Um, he's been invited in, but he doesn't feel like he's properly on the inside. Now, in the text, he's described as an Ethiopian eunuch. He's a court official. He's a treasurer, treasurer of a queen, um, and he's clearly a very important figure. But Luke, the author of Acts, while he gives us lots of descriptive detail about this man, one of the characteristics that he consistently highlights is that, that this man is a eunuch, which means he was physically castrated in some way. Did you notice that down in the text, if you have a look down with me, um, how he's characterized as the eunuch? Uh, we see it in verse 34. 
the eunuch said, and verse 36, and the eunuch said, verse 38, they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and verse 39, and the eunuch saw him no more. Luke is the author of Acts, and he could have called him the Ethiopian. That's quite a prominent characteristic in Acts when you think about the gospel going out to the nations. He could have called him the Ethiopian. Um, He could have used his actual name. That might have been polite. Um, But instead, he chose to call him the eunuch and focus on his physical condition throughout the narrative. And it's important that we consider why that is if we're going to capture the point of the message. And the other detail about the man that's important to note up front is where he's been and where he's going now and what he's doing. Um, So I think it's verse 27, if you have a look down again, um, you'll see that um, this eunuch, the court official, he's just come from Jerusalem to worship. He's been to Jerusalem to worship in verse 27, um, and now he's heading back home. So he's been to Jerusalem, he's heading back home, and he's reading a bit of the Bible, uh, a bit of prophet Isaiah, uh, which is a little bit of the text we had read earlier. The bit we had read is a little bit further on, but it's the same book. And this tells us that he's likely to be a Jewish convert, um, someone who's been born in a different culture and a different religious worldview, but he's now decided to follow the Lord, the God of Israel, the one true God. And so he's decided he wants to join with God's people, and he wants to worship the Lord the way they do. Hence the trip to Jerusalem, where the temple of the Lord would have stood, and he would have joined with God's people to worship in Jerusalem. Hence the reading of the Bible. What we have here in the eunuch is a fledgling Jewish convert in the first century. So this man, he is both a eunuch, let's remember that, he's a eunuch, and he's a converted worshipper of the Lord. Now in the wider sweep of the biblical narrative, um, from this man's perspective, that is a difficult combination a eunuch worshipping the Lord would have been historically challenging. And that's key background to what's happening here um, between Philip and the eunuch. And in the context, context of the wider biblical narrative, the, the eunuch's baptism at the end is extraordinary. It's not expected. It's meant to be extraordinary. And it has wonderful implications for our own inclusion in the kingdom of God. So we're going to spend some time um, up front just thinking a bit about eunuchs in the context of the Old Testament to give us a sense of what this man's going through. Hopefully as we do that, we can start to identify with aspects of the eunuch's condition and begin to appreciate the wonderful way in which the gospel speaks into his life and ours. So we're going to, believe, we're going to start by thinking about um, eunuchs in the context of the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy very briefly. Um, The exclusion of eunuchs turns up in Leviticus, and this is in the context of what priests can and cannot do as they serve in the temple of the Lord in the Old Testament, the Old Testament temple of the Lord. Uh, There was a lot of symbolism involved um, in the physical rituals of the Old Testament. Um, Physical appearances were important because um, physical things in the temple were meant to be like a symbol of a bigger reality. Uh, Think of the temple as a miniature model of something bigger. This is not really a tractor, but it's a picture of a tractor. It's a little thing that's a picture of a bigger thing. And if it didn't look much like a tractor, 
children probably wouldn't play with it and call it a tractor and think it was exciting. So think of the temple as a miniature of something bigger. Um, one of the big things the temple was designed to communicate about God was that he was perfect and that he was holy. Um, so if something came into the temple, into the symbolic presence of God, that thing had to look perfect and it had to look holy. So that means anything that was damaged or um, dirty or broken, none of that could come in. Everything had to look perfect. And that included the people working in the temple, the priests. Um, so if a priest had an injury, so he had a broken arm or a broken leg or um, he couldn't see, maybe he had a nasty, nasty rash, or if he'd been castrated like our eunuch would have been, they weren't allowed to perform certain tasks as priests in the temple, that were, where, that, where the parts of the temple were considered the most holy. Eunuchs were prevented from performing the tasks that brought you symbolically closest to God, because God could only be approached by symbolic perfection, because he himself was perfect. So the exclusion of eunuchs, let's remember that, from the holiest parts of the temple was symbolic. Understood correctly, that symbolism, that symbol of separation, it pointed to a much bigger problem, a problem that affects every aspect of human interaction with God, the reality that every human heart is imperfect. It's a truth we all know. The reality that no human being can come fully into the presence of God on their own merits. Unfortunately for the eunuch that Philip meets, in his day, he would have become an enduring symbol of imperfection in the eyes of his new faith community. He would have been considered something of a second-class follower of the Lord in the eyes of his fellow worshippers, if we can use that term. That was never meant to be the point of those restrictions in Leviticus, but that is how he would have been perceived. Now, if we, um, if we for a moment, consider our own uh, imperfect hearts, consider them laid fully exposed before the Lord, and how that would feel, that begins to give you a sense of the shame the eunuch might feel in his community as he sought to worship in the temple in Jerusalem earlier that day before Philip meets him. That picture of exposed imperfection and all the shame that that would carry. Now the exclusion of eunuchs, it also turns up um, in another book of the Bible called Deuteronomy a little bit later. And this time it's in the context of people who worship false gods. People who worship false gods. What we're talking about here is a self-inflicted self castration as an act of devotion to an idol. It's pretty, pretty gruesome. Um, in that context, being a eunuch is to carry a physical scar of a past sin. A physical scar of a past sin. It's evidence of past behavior that showed a lack of allegiance to God. Uh, if we all consider our own histories, the way we've behaved in the past, and as we consider our own sin and the prospect of drawing near to God, is there a sense of unworthiness that comes with that reflection? That's, the, that's a really natural response for all of us 
to feel, and that sense of unworthiness for association with the past begins to give you a sense of how the unit would be perceived in his new community. The shame he might feel as he sought to worship in the temple of the Lord early that day in Jerusalem. So then we have these two themes woven through scripture when we think of eunuchs. We think of um, that theme of imperfection and that theme of a sinful past. That's the kind of, those are the kind of buzzwords we're thinking that we have associated with eunuchs. Imperfection and a sinful past. Um, and if you're a first century convert to Judaism, um, someone who's decided they want to follow the Lord and join his people from the outside and worship the Lord as they do, being a eunuch is going to carry those historical stigmas. So as a result, he's going to be held at a distance. Um, he's going to feel like a second-class worshipper, almost welcome, but not quite worthy, not really one of us, not fully belonging. I wonder if, in some ways, we can relate to that eunuch's experience, that feeling of being treated or being made to feel like a second-class Christian, sitting on the outside just a bit, almost welcome, but not quite worthy, too imperfect, too ashamed of the past, too stigmatized, not expecting to be accepted by Christ, not expecting to be accepted by his church. I wonder if we can relate to that in some way, to give you a sense of what our eunuch is going through. With that feeling of empathy for the eunuch's plight, I want to bring us back into the narrative. Um, it's verse 32 and verse 33. Verse 32 and 33, if you have a look down there, to consider what the eunuch was reading from the prophet Isaiah as Philip overhears him from the carriage. Um, he's reading a little bit of Isaiah 53, which is talking about the humiliation of Jesus as he's crucified on a Roman cross. Here the eunuch, he's reading an account of someone who was themselves humiliated. Someone themselves who had no descendants. Someone themselves who was denied justice. And the eunuch says to Philip in verse 34, about whom, I ask, does the prophet say this? Is Isaiah talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? Who's Isaiah talking about? And I wonder here if there is just a sense of the eunuch identifying his own humiliation with that of Jesus' humiliation. His life experience of what he's reading about happened to Jesus. But the amazing news for this eunuch, he's not just reading about someone who has experienced a humiliation like his own. But he's reading about the one who has actually taken the eunuch's humiliation upon himself. This is more than just empathy. He's reading about the humiliation of Jesus Christ crucified on his behalf. One who was rejected so that the eunuch no longer had to be. One who was rejected so the eunuch no longer had to be. Um, in the Old Testament reading um, Karen brought to us, we heard some of the wonderful consequences of that news in Isaiah 56. If you want to turn back to page 616, we're just going to be in there for a few minutes. Isaiah 56, keep a finger in Acts. Isaiah 56, verses 3 to 8. 
there we saw some of the wonderful promises now made to the eunuch because of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. 56 verse 5, it promises eunuchs a place in God's house and within God's walls where he had always otherwise been kept out and excluded. Once held at a distance from the most holy regions, not able to come fully into the presence of God, and now he has a place in the heart of God's household, in his house, in his walls. Once he was outside, and now he is inside, fully included. He's also promised, in those same verses, a name a name better than sons or daughters, an everlasting name. This eunuch, he was never going to have physical descendants. He didn't have children, but now his name was going to live on forever in the house of the Lord because he was going to live forever in the presence of the Lord. Once his life was fleeting and fading, and now it's everlasting. For this unit, the gospel of Jesus Christ had changed everything. It had changed absolutely everything. And it is with that realization that we come back into Acts. If you turn back to Acts chapter 8, we come to the heart of the narrative, the key question that he asks in verse 36. He realizes the implication of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And he says, water, see here is water. What prevents me from being baptized. What prevents me from being baptized? People had always kept this man at a distance, but if the blood of Jesus had been shed for him, if Jesus had cleansed him and given him the promise of eternal life, what prevented the unit from coming near to God? What prevented him from being fully included in the household of God? And the answer is, in the text, absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing prevented him coming to God. The carriage is stopped, and he's baptized. Philip had explained the good news of Jesus Christ crucified in verse 35, and it's like the light bulb had gone on in the eunuch's mind. You can imagine him thinking something like this, like, hold on, Philip, if what you're saying is true, if Jesus' blood has really paid the price for my sin, then nothing can keep me from the presence of God. None of my imperfections, none of the sins in my past, nothing I've ever done. Do you ever worry what God thinks about your imperfections? Or do you ever think of the past and wonder, could God really accept me into my presence after what I've done, after the way I've lived? This eunuch, he was perceived as a second-class citizen by the believers of his day. But in Jesus, there are no second-class citizens of heaven. And there are no second-class citizens of his church. There are no snitches with stars and snitches without. There'll be some here today who are followers of Jesus, but as 
you dwell on your imperfections and on the events of the past. You feel unworthy of the presence of Jesus in your life, or you feel unworthy of being fully accepted into his church family. Consider the question of that marginalized eunuch. What prevents me? What prevents me? This text, it also has implications for how we treat one another in our church family. Because there are no star-bellied snitches among us. Um, look at um, how Philip treats the eunuch in the narrative. He, he goes up to him, and he sits next to him in the chariot, and he explains the gospel to him, and he welcomes him and baptizes him as a brother. He fully accepts him. I can think of a church known to me from, from some years ago where people were keen that you came along to the services and they were, they were really good at inviting people into the church. Um, but once you'd been there a while and the initial buzz had been new, had kind of worn off, it was quite hard to get to know certain groups of people. Some groups, they would, they would, kind, of, they would kind of huddle, kind of keep themselves to themselves, getting off, getting off that kind of vague sense Never said, but kind of a vague sense of there's some in the inner group and some in the outer group. If you're a certain type of person, you can get into that inner group. But if you're not that sort of person, you kind of stayed on the outside of certain circles. A bit like our eunuch. That feeling of being happily invited, we're glad you're here, but that welcome just turning a little bit lukewarm once you're on the inside. We don't really think about the, um, the cultural exclusion of eunuchs these days, that's not really something we talk about, but we might think of um, contemporary cultural issues um, like, um, like money, uh, who has it, or um, education, uh, who is privileged by it, or a charisma, who displays it. We can go on. Um, none of these things, um, none of these things changes our standing before God. None of these changes our standing in his church, um, and the lack of these things doesn't make us any less worthy of the kingdom of heaven doesn't make us any less worthy of full membership of his church family. The gospel is for anyone who would come to Jesus as their Lord and as their King. If Jesus' precious blood was shed for you, what prevents you being fully accepted into the household of God? Nothing prevents you from being fully accepted because you are a full and complete citizen of heaven and don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. Let me pray for us as we close. Oh God, I thank you for these words recorded by Luke. Lord, thank you for Philip's willingness to share the gospel with his Ethiopian eunuch. Thank you that he was fully included in your people. May we know that in Jesus, we are fully accepted. May we know that in Jesus, nothing prevents us being a full part of Jesus' church family. Lord, help us to treat one another with the dignity that Philip showed that eunuch. 
Lord, help us to see each other the way that you see us in Christ. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.